Acts 1. I told you to turn there, but I didn't turn there. So, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, this isn't something we do flippantly. This isn't something we do out of tradition. This is something we do out of worship and hunger to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. Paul wrote that this word is God-breathed. So, Father, we pray that you would anoint my lips or let my personality fall behind the cross as the breath of the Spirit speaks to us. We need to hear you, Lord. We pray all the time. We pray again, Lord, we've had enough of personalities and charisma and giftings in the church in our day. We need to hear the voice of God. Let no man receive your glory. Speak, O Holy Spirit. Move. For Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake, that Jesus be exalted and glorified. That the blood of Jesus wash the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, we're going to start this morning studying Acts chapter 1 through 4. Are you guys excited about studying Acts 1 through 4? I want to say off the, off the bat, we're, we're going to have to hear God's word afresh and anew. Every person comes to the scripture with preconceived ideas and preconceived notions. We particularly in the West come to the scripture with a set of naturalistic ideas. Um, we are taught all throughout our education, through our culture, um, that, that nothing exists unless you can touch it and feel it. And that's not the worldview of scripture. Okay, and so um, as we come to the scriptures, we're going to have to come with a willingness to hear what the Spirit said through these men and women of God in and, and, and in the, in the written word, and we're going to have to hear their worldview, their experiences, and, and it's, we, we can't just, hear me for a second, you, we can't, as, as Westerners, we love the logic of Paul. Give me Paul's logic. Give me Paul's reasoning. We love to expound and exposit the teaching of Paul, to feel the full brunt of Paul's reasoning upon us as we, as we explore his logic. We can't love Paul's logic and not love Paul's worldview and belief system because when a young man falls from the rafter and is dead, Paul doesn't sit back and go, oh, we're going to have to grieve with those who are grieving. Paul raises the dead. Okay, and so we can't love Paul's logic and then go, oh, but Paul's a fanatic for believing in the sick being healed. You can't love Paul's logic with our Western minds. We, we want to feel the weight of his reasoning and then go, oh, but all tongue talkers are demon-possessed. Do you realize that every person who wrote in the New Testament spoke in tongues? Every single one. And, and so, so what we've done is we love our worldview sometimes more than we love the Scripture. And we're too far on our high horse to acknowledge that. Now... This conversation that we'll have as we look at Acts can be polarizing. And so it's not my intent to be polarizing, but it's my intent to walk through these scriptures, use the hermeneutic that we've used all along. By hermeneutic, I mean method of interpretation. So as a church, we studied Galatians line by line, and we interpreted it, understanding that Paul as an author had an intent. And so we tried to grasp, what is Paul saying to the church at Galatia? We tried to understand the history and the cultural context. There's a method to interpretation that we used as we studied Galatians, trying to draw out what the Spirit was really saying. As a church, we studied Philippians, we've studied Ephesians, we've studied chapters in Samuel, we've studied chapters of Daniel with a certain hermeneutic, believing that the authors actually intended for us to hear something. I want you to know that as we study Acts chapter 1 through 4, we're going to use the same hermeneutic. 
We're going to believe that the authors, in this case Luke, actually intended to communicate something, and we're going to try to understand what Luke intended to communicate. At times, that may offend your background, your history, your sensibilities. But at the end of the day, your background and your tradition is not what's authoritative. Your worldview that you learned in the West, it's not what's authoritative. Men in ivory towers who have put out all of their opinions and ideas, heads of denominations, that's not what's authoritative. The only thing that's authoritative to the true church is the written word of God, what God said in the scriptures. So I'm going to have to ask you to hear what God says in the scriptures again. I think largely, forgive me, because again, I don't want to be polarizing, but this is such a polarizing topic in the church. But I think largely we've been duped. We've allowed men with PhD and degrees in front of their name to tell us that the Spirit of God no longer works. That's not what the Scripture says. They told us that when the Apostle John died, the Holy Spirit quit allowing the gifts of the Spirit to function. It's not what the Scripture says. Paul says, when you see Jesus face to face, then you will no longer need to prophesy. Because all will be done. When you see Jesus face to face, then there will be no gifts of healing. Because everyone will be healed. The, the teaching of Scripture is plain, very plain. That the church was always supposed to be reliant upon the power and the moving of the Holy Spirit. The church was not supposed to rely on her own intellect and her own gift sets and her own strategies and programs. The church was supposed to rely on the Holy Ghost. And again, I said it to you last week, we've been taught that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we need Him more than ever. Now, we've been told that the Spirit quit working in any supernatural way when the Apostle John died, when he penned his last words. Those who study church history will honestly will acknowledge that that never happened, that the church has always seen signs, wonders, and miracles, tongues, and healing. That's always happened in church history. Those who look at church history honestly will also tell you that there was a decline in the activity of the Holy Spirit, and you can trace that decline to the exact age when the church no longer functioned as an organism that was after the proclamation of the gospel, but when the church became a political thing. When the church yoked itself to political ideologies and the church tried to gain political power and regions, then the church no longer had in its midst the acting and the working of the Holy Spirit. And it's just really convenient when you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your midst to say, God doesn't do that anymore. Very convenient. It's very convenient to say in the West, rather than get on our faces and cry out, God, we don't have your glory in our midst. The glory of God when Solomon dedicated the temple, it filled the whole temple as a cloud and not a priest could stand on his feet because the glory of God, the, the weightiness of his presence crushed everyone who dared stand. We, we won't pray, oh God, we don't have your glory. It's much more convenient to say, oh God doesn't do that anymore. It's not what the scripture says. I understand that there are fanatics I understand that there's emotionalism. I understand all of that. But my goal is not to be the opposite of a fanatic. My goal is not to say that's emotionalism and what I'm going to do is be the opposite of emotionalism. Our goal is to be biblical. Okay? Not to be the opposite of, of people who have operated in error. Our goal is not to be the opposite of them. 
So when Paul corrects the Corinthian church, who, who is operating the gifts of the Spirit in a way that was not um, honoring to the Lord, Paul does not tell the Corinthians, hey, you need to quit. No more gifts of the Spirit. You can't do that. We're, you're, you're being weird. you got some weird folks over there, so everybody needs to quit praying in tongues. No, Paul brought balance. Because the church needed the power of the Spirit. Desperately needed the power of the Spirit. And many in, in the church in the West, many in our region, this is where it is a polarizing conversation. And forgive me, because I'm going to do my best just to be honest. Many in our region would say, oh, people that believe in healing, people that believe in tongues, they're all fanatics. Don't, don't be around them. They're, they're just a bunch of emotional fanatics. And again, some of y'all are, okay? Some of you are just <laughs> kooky, all right? You're just kooky. Um, But the, the question is not whether or not there are fanatics in our midst. The question is, is the Holy Ghost in our midst? And are we being biblical? At what point do we ask the question, what does the Bible say? At what point do we ask the question, what did Peter and Paul believe? Again, acknowledging that they both spoke in tongues, prayed for the sick, prophesied. John surely spoke in tongues. And so there, there's, there's a worldview that goes with the scriptures because all of the authors of scripture, the New Testament, they, sh they shared a common experience, the power of the spirit. And so it's perfectly appropriate to allow that common experience to, to, to slide into your hermeneutic or the way that I interpret scripture. So when Saul, Paul says, pray in the spirit at all times, I don't interpret that to mean pray in a way that where you're trying to, I, I'm allowed to interpret that to mean expect the power of God to manifest itself in your prayer life because that's what Paul and Peter experienced. Well, let's start reading. And I'll, again, I'll do my best not to be polarizing. It's not my job or intent to drive a wedge in between the church of Christ, but it, but, but, but it is my job to be as thoroughly biblical as I can be, okay? It's my job. And so we're going to use the same hermeneutic that we've always used. What does the scripture say? That's our primary question. What is it actually trying to say to us? We'll use that hermeneutic. We'll start studying Acts chapter 1 through 4. Let's read Acts 1, 1. In the first book, Old Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had all come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this the end, God? Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. First, Luke, the author, opens with in the first book, O Theophilus. 
Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts to be read as a continuative narrative. Theophilus, many believe, was a historical figure, a man of influence, likely a political man, um, who inquired of Luke the physician, tell me more about Jesus, about your gospel, about what you've experienced. That's likely. The other thing that may be happening, the name Theophilus, you'll recognize the Theo at the front means God. The the Philist part means um, loved by or friend of God. And so many scholars believe that when Paul starts, or Luke starts writing to Theophilus, he's using that as a literary device and he's calling you a loved one. He's calling you a one loved of God. He's writing to you one who is a friend of God. That theory is actually really common and may be the case. But it's worth noting that when you study the conclusion of Luke, it does flow right into the introduction of Acts. And in that sense, the book of Acts is an extension of the gospel. It is when the the church is birthed and the gospel begins to spread throughout the earth. And Luke wanted you to recognize that connection. Luke said that in the book of Luke, in the, in the gospel, he wrote all that Jesus did and taught. Jesus wasn't merely a teacher. Many want you to believe Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great teacher. But Jesus did and taught. He proclaimed the coming kingdom, taught about the coming kingdom, and he displayed the coming kingdom. Through signs, wonders, and miracles, he healed the sick. He brought sight to the blind. He preached the gospel to the captive. He delivered the demonically oppressed. That's clearly part of the gospel message. Demonically oppressed people find liberation at the power and the authority of Jesus. Did demons go away when the scriptures were finished being written to? Oh God, we've got plenty of them in our nation. So Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples for 40 days, and he taught them further concerning the kingdom. The instruction that follows is red letter. It's from the mouth of Jesus. These are the words of the resurrected Lord of the universe. As a young man, I was shocked and appalled when I began to study these words and recognize that in my entirety of growing up within an evangelical church, nobody ever taught me this. This is red letter from the mouth of Jesus. Now, I grew up in Pensacola, which um, you'll know is where, where Brownsville, the Brownsville revival happened. And so there was certainly a polarizing effect that happened in our community concerning the gifts and the power of the Spirit. But I was shocked and appalled in later years to learn that many of the, the men and, and women who taught in our churches had experienced the power of God for themselves but never taught on it because if they taught on it, it would be polarizing and they may lose their position. And that's a shame, okay? What, what I'm going to say to you, it, it may be offensive to you, but our pastor used to say this all the time. He would say that his dad taught him um, that when you, when, you, when you go to the, the dance with a young lady or to the girls, when you go to the dance with a young man, it's honoring to dance with the one who brought you, is what he would always say. You dance with the one who brought you. And for me, the power of the Holy Ghost changed my life, radically flipped me upside down. It, he would always say, our pastor would always say, I'm going to dance with the one who brought me. The Spirit of God, the power of God changed my life. I'm not going to put a, put a muzzle over my mouth at, at this for the sake of not offending you. And so I want to show you through Scripture what I learned from Scripture and changed my life. These are the words of Jesus. He ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait on the promise of the Father. Now, 
we stumble into a question immediately. What is the promise of the Father? Well, Jesus tells us that John baptized with water, but not many days from now, these disciples would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus refers to the promise of the Father, he is referring to baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now wait, all the pulpits in the West would say, hold on one second, these men have the Holy Spirit. They've been drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. No man comes to Jesus unless the Spirit of God draws him. They have been born again. They have believed upon the resurrected Jesus. They are in communion with the Holy Spirit. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus looks at the disciples in the upper room and he breathes on them. (sighs) Receive the Holy Spirit. These men have encountered and known the Holy Spirit. No man comes to salvation without the Holy Spirit. These men do have the Spirit of God. Again, they've been drawn by the Spirit, born again by the Spirit, breathed on by Jesus himself, telling him to receive the Holy Spirit. But this promise of the Father, this baptism in the Spirit, is clearly something different. Jesus is asking them to wait on another experience, a a separate, distinct event that will happen, which he calls the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so we're argued with, well, that was just the original disciples. Just the originals had to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a secondary event. After that, everyone who gets saved, they automatically, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not the record of Acts. Acts chapter 8, look with me there. Starting in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, scattered by persecution. There was persecution in Jerusalem, and many believers scattered. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. They heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Into Acts 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 1, these men are born again, They've had a conversation with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus breathed on them and told them to receive a filling of the Holy Spirit. These men have the Holy Spirit, yet they don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches the gospel in signs, wonders, and miracles. He brings deliverance to the demonically oppressed. He heals the sick. Many who are paralyzed for the entirety of their lives, they get up and walk as Philip proclaims the gospel. The scripture says they received the word and were baptized in water. Are they saved? Obviously. Do they have a relationship, communion with the Holy Spirit? Obviously. But they had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles who are in Jerusalem, Philip's in Samaria, they hear that Philip is successful, that there are people in Samaria who have received the word of God, they've been baptized, they are saved and born again, and what the apostles do is they send Peter and John to lay hands on them because the Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. 
Do they have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Don't let any man or woman ever tell you that if you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. It's not true. There are no second-class believers in the kingdom of God. Not true. Don't let any man or woman prop themselves up because they speak in tongues. There, there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. The greatest in the kingdom are the servants of all. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a, not a means to create a hierarchy. So what we get in Acts chapter 1 is these men clearly have a, had a filling of the Holy Spirit, yet they have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8, these men have received the word. They've seen signs and wonders. They've been baptized in water. They clearly are saved, born again, going to heaven, know the Holy Spirit. Yet the Spirit has not yet fallen upon any of them. So Peter and John come lay their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. Well, that's two incidences where the incidents where the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary event that happens after salvation. But you can keep reading through the Acts narrative and, and the thing keeps playing out. Consider the life of Paul. Paul is on the way to Damascus riding a horse. He's knocked off by a great shining light, falls off of his horse. And this moment he encounters the resurrected Jesus. Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting? Paul heads towards Damascus. God sends a man named Ananias to pray for him. Three days later, he's been blind. God struck him blind. So for three days, he's been in prayer and fasting. He's, he's had a conversation with the resurrected Jesus. Is he born again? By God, he's born again. Surely he has been rejuvenated, revived, and received the gospel. But the scripture says that when Ananias laid his hands on him, the scales fell from his eyes. That he received the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 19. I'll show you one more thing. And again, we're just working straight through the book of Acts. One more thing I'll show you and then we'll move on from this point. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he says to them, And to what were you baptized? And they say, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. What you have here is an account where some men consider themselves to be disciples, but they're not, they're, they're not born again. They have, they've not received the full gospel. They've only heard the account up to John, the baptizer. But the question that Paul leads with is an incredibly fascinating question. It's a question that the churches in our midst would never ask. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That question doesn't make sense in Western theology because, of course, everyone who believes receives the Holy Spirit. They lead into conversation, and Paul realizes that they haven't been saved at all. So the scripture says that he baptized them in the name of Jesus, meaning he baptized them in water. Then he laid his hands on them, and they began to prophesy and speak in tongues. So Paul, the man who we love his legal logic in conversations with, with people who he met along the way, he asked the question, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Does that question make sense in your theology? So plainly we see 
that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Acts account as a secondary event. It, is, it does not have to happen at salvation. Now, at the case of Cornelius, at Cornelius' Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10, the baptism of the Holy Spirit does take place in a, in a moment. And so they're hearing Peter preach, they respond to the gospel, and then they all of a sudden just begin to speak in tongues. And Peter's trying to preach, and he's got a congregation of Gentiles who are speaking in tongues over his preaching. So it does happen in a, in a moment. And here with these men in Acts chapter 19, I would say they were saved, baptized in water, and then Paul laid hands on them, and they began to speak in tongues. And so it does happen in a day. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit can happen at salvation in the same instant in a full sweep. But it doesn't always happen at the same moment. So these born-again men and women in Acts chapter 1, they've been told in Matthew chapter 28 to go into all the earth and preach the gospel, teaching every nation what Jesus has taught, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've been told to spread out and preach. But now Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, tells them in Acts chapter 1, don't go anywhere. Wait. Wait for spirit baptism, and you shall be my witnesses. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the spirit. Then you shall go and be my witnesses. So what we learn is that being baptized in the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with a standing hierarchy. It does not make you more or less spiritual. You are born again by faith alone. Faith in the cross of Jesus alone. The life, death, and resurrection of God's only Son. That is the only way any man is saved. And in that sense, the moment you are born again, you become a witness to the gospel. A witness to what God has done in your life. But Jesus tells these disciples that there is a certain kind of witness that he wants them to become. A witness that doesn't only witness out of their own personal experience. But a witness who witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about a personal experience. It's not about what has happened in you. It's about what happens on the outside of you. The idea of being baptized, that you picture it in water, is being submerged. So when a young man or woman, old man or woman, is baptized in water, the water does not go inside of them. The water is on the outside of them. And when they raise up, they're covered in water. The idea of being anointed with oil it's, this, it's, it's a representation of the Holy Spirit on the outside of you for your witness. So Jesus tells the disciples they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit, submerged in the presence of God. So that when they witness, they will not only witness from personal experience, but when they witness, they will witness by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is not about you being higher or more spiritual, you climbing some ladder of spiritual experience. The baptism of the Spirit is not about you having some spiritual ecstasy moment. It's not about any of that. The baptism of the Spirit is about what God wants to do through you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is about getting on the altar and saying, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll say anything. I'll witness to any person. 
you nudged me to pray for the sick, and I'll pray for the sick. Put your spirit on me. That those who really desire the baptism of the Holy Spirit are not those who want to seem extra spiritual than the rest. They're not those who are seeking some spiritual nirvana. They're not those who want more experience. Give me more experience because I'm so selfish and self-consumed that I can't go on without more experience. Give me more experience. No, it's not that at all. It's pour me out for your glory, God. It's I'll lay down all of my life. There's no avenue of my life that you can't have. Use me to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what's happened in the church? Let me check the time here. What's happened in the church? I'll say it to you this way. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've talked about a lot recently, who again, who's called the greatest preacher in the last hundred years, who was a Calvinist, he was largely rejected because he believed what I'm teaching you today, and he believed it because of interpreting the scripture. He believed the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary account. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he talked about Jonathan Edwards, he said that Jonathan Edwards was uh, one of the last of the Puritans, but the Puritans really split. They split into what we know as the Puritans and what we know as the Quakers. And the Quakers went all after experience and power, and they wanted to hear God's voice for themselves. And the Puritans went all after head and logic and the word of God. But Jonathan Edwards, he said, he was both a Puritan and a Quaker. He wanted the power of God in his life. He believed that the Holy Spirit would still show up and do things, but he also believed in proclaiming the true gospel, what's written in the scripture. And so you say to me, I don't want to be a Pentecostal or charismatic because they're filled with doctrinal error. And I say to you, yes, they are. The charismatic church has more heresy floating around than any other church as far as I'm concerned. The charismatic church has garbage teaching floating around in the air. Garbage. I have no no qualm with saying that. There's garbage floating around the air. We've polluted the earth with, with garbage, heretical, sloppy teaching. No problem saying that. But my job, my goal is not to be a charismatic or not to be a charismatic. My job and goal is to follow the authority of Scripture. And what God says here is what he wants are people who are baptized in the power of his spirit who then proclaim the pure gospel of Jesus. And what you've done, if you've created churches who just do the gospel, just do justification by faith alone, let's just do Martin Luther over and over for the rest of our lives. And the gospel, justification by faith alone, is absolutely beautiful. It is central, it is a foundation, it is a starting place. But you are supposed to proclaim the gospel of justification by faith alone, because of the blood of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in the power of your own intellect. Not in the power of your charisma. Not in the power of your personality. You were supposed to proclaim what Jesus did on the cross, being bathed in the Holy Spirit all the while while you did it. The New Testament saints, when they went to preach, Philip, just look at Philip, just look at him. Philip goes to preach the gospel. What does he do? What does he do? You tell me, okay? The scripture says it. I'm not making it up. I don't want to be a charismatic. I don't want to be made fun of and called a person who has no intellect. I'm not after that, and I've been called at all. What does Philip do? He heals the sick. Does he heal the sick by his own strength and personality? By God, no. He heals the sick by the activity of the Holy Spirit on his life. He cast out demons. You think he cast out demons by his own strength and charisma? No, he cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit on his life. He, he raised men up to walk who've been paralyzed by their whole life by the power of the Holy Spirit on his life. And then he proclaimed the gospel truth that it's only by the shed blood of Christ that any man will be forgiven of his sins. 
And you tell me I've got to pick one or the other. And I pick Bible. The Spirit and the Word. And Lord Jones's point was, it's only when men like Jonathan Edwards that get after the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's the only time the church will have revival. Maybe you'll have a revival of great intellect. Maybe you'll have a revival of theology. But men are not born again until they encounter the Holy Ghost. Many have used the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a way to classify the spiritual and non-spiritual, to abuse and manipulate the body. That's true. It's absolutely true. And we need to repent of it. But what we learn from Acts chapter 1 is that what God wants is men and women who are willing to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit to be bathed in His presence and to minister from that place. He wants to submerge his children, baptize them, sink them. That word baptize again, baptizo, it literally means to be sunk in. Imagine a ship that goes down in the water. God wants to sink you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. When people encounter you and they just know there's something different, God wants to begin to speak to you as you witness and minister things that you should not know on your own. He wants the oil of the Spirit to flow off of these disciples. Oh, Peter's got a big mouth. And Paul's a smart man. But God's not looking for big mouths or smart men. He's looking for men and women who are willing to be submerged in his presence. Somebody from the worship team come for me. It's not about ecstasy. It's not about personal. Oh, it is an experience, but it's not about experiencing more. It's about being used of God. It's about falling so in love with the gospel, the cross, that you say, God, give me more of your spirit so that I can proclaim this cross with greater clarity and greater power, that I can display the coming kingdom which you preached and brought. It's being so in love with what Jesus did that you can imagine not spending your life proclaiming it. It's falling so deeply in love with the message of justification by faith alone. It's allowing the blood of Jesus to really do something to you. And then saying, God, anoint me to proclaim this message. And it is true that the charismatic Pentecostal movement is filled with heresy. It's true that there's garbage teaching. It is also true that the gospel has been preached to the nations faster in our day than it ever has been throughout all of history. And it was from men and women who said, God, put your spirit on me. China turns like this. Africa turns like this. South America turns like this. You think they turn with the intellect of man? They turn by the fire of God. And it's a shame. I hear stories all the time. It's a shame. Men and women who are missionaries in other nations. They live their lives by the power of the Spirit. They wake up in the morning, they pray in tongues, believe for God to move. If their denominations ever knew that they prayed in tongues, they'd be kicked out immediately. Denominations who are growing in other countries are growing by men and women who are operating by the power of the Spirit. But if they knew what I did in my closet, if they knew that I prayed in tongues, I'd lose my license immediately. I've heard it over and over. It's the same for me at times in my life. So the disciples say to Jesus, when will you return? Acts chapter 1, okay, we're, we're working towards the ascension. 
or in the 40-day period of Jesus walking the earth before the ascension. Jesus is getting ready to go. When will you return, Jesus? Jesus, it's not, not your place to know what the Father intends to do. But wait, you wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Spirit, and then you'll be my witnesses. Or you say, oh, I don't want to be like the weird people. Oh, I don't want to be like them either. I don't. I don't want to be like those folks on YouTube who are just acting a fool for the sake of acting a fool. Oh, me either. But I also don't want to be a witness who's dry. You say, oh, I'm offended by that. Oh, be offended by the scripture, man. It would have been much easier for me if I never came across this doctrine. But there are times where I've stood up to minister, stood up to preach. There are times when I go to speak to someone and I'm very aware that the presence of God is moving in that moment. There's nothing more beautiful than just being God's mouthpiece and not having to minister out of my own strength, not having to minister out of my own intellect, but just allowing the presence of the Holy Ghost on my life to minister. Do you want that? You're gonna have to want God more than you don't want to be weird. Is the plain teaching of scripture. It is. Just go ahead and stand to your feet. If Paul were to ask you, like he asked those men in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, did you receive the spirit when you believed? Can you say this morning that you've tarried and waited on the Holy Spirit? Again, that's the point is that these men waited for God to baptize them in fire before they went out to minister. Can you say, there was a season in my life where I waited on the altar and said, oh God, please baptize me in your spirit so that I can go to the nations with your message. Or is there a season where you said, the cross has radically transformed me. Oh God, put more of your spirit on me so I can proclaim it with power. Have you had that season? And then God meets you in that place. It's not about a hierarchy. It's not about who's more spiritual than the rest. Oh, you're, none of you are spiritual. About the grace of God on your life. The power of God comes upon us that we be his witnesses. Not to prove that we're more spiritual than anyone else, but to see the nations receive Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That our, that our testimony is not from our own intellect, but it's from the presence of God, the glory of God. Signs and wonders that we can never muster up. Words of knowledge and wisdom that we could have never known. Preaching that cuts right to the heart. So this morning as we get ready to close, we're gonna open the altar up for a few minutes. Um, what I wanna do, altar team, is we're just... Well, we'll just, we'll just let people come as they want to come. If you want to receive prayer for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we want to ask you to come as we worship. And there may be some of you here who would say, I don't even, I've never given my life to God. I have no idea what you're talking about. We want you to know that your sins can be forgiven by the gospel of Jesus. There was blood shed for you. You deserve judgment and punishment. There's only one way to escape it. The blood of Jesus shed for you on Calvary. Today, you can give your life to Jesus. You can know all your sins are forgiven. 
So the altar team is going to be here to pray for that, for you to give your life to Jesus. The altar team is going to be here to pray for those of you who want to start praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you want to believe that God would submerge you in his presence so that you can preach the gospel to the nations in power, we're going to have that opened up. And also, I just want to say, some of you, maybe you grew up in this kind of setting. I didn't grow up in this kind of setting. This wasn't something we talked about. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit was never something I took for granted. But some of you would say, I've spent my whole life in charismatic churches. And when I was a teenager, someone laid hands on me and I prayed in tongues and I never did it again. Or I, or I prophesied and that was that. And it was some, I got the t-shirt and I moved on. It's not about a t-shirt. It's about a lifestyle of wanting to see the nations come to Jesus and doing it dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So some of you may say, man, I just want to, I just want to ask God to, to bathe me in his presence again. I need his fire afresh. I need a fresh filling. I want to ask you to come today. So what we'll do is we'll worship for another moment. So we got somebody back here music, but I can't see anybody. Um, we'll worship for a moment. I'm going to pray, and the altars are going to be open. I want to encourage you not to be embarrassed. I want to encourage you not to make this about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about anybody being spiritual. It's about the nations hearing the truth of what Jesus has done for us and witnessing the power of the Spirit. So, Lord, we love you. We need you. Lord, we need you. Oh, Lord, our, our nation is going to pot. Lord, we need you. Lord, we've had the intellect of man. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We need you to anoint us in power. Lord, we do need signs and wonders. Acts chapter 4, the disciples gathered and they prayed that you would stretch out your hand, perform signs and wonders while you filled them with boldness to preach the gospel. That's our prayer. Stretch out your hand and do something, God, and fill us with boldness to preach the gospel. Lord, we're willing to look weird. We're willing to be rejected. Oh God, just use us, we pray. Go ahead and come, congregation. Seth, would somebody go ahead and sing for us? Lord, we crucify our pride today. We need you. He's coming through. We need you. You're going to have to lay your pride down sooner or later. Jesus. Jesus. You're worthy. Come on and sing this with me.
Hey, Audrey, will you send me some more folks to pray? Send me some folks to pray. Don, will you come pray with us? gospel of Christ, but we know we can't do it in our own strength. Lord, we ask for men and women who are baptized in your presence to be cut loose to be your witnesses, not to build our church, not to build any particular church, but to build your kingdom, build your kingdom, to see Jesus exalted in the earth. Our greatest desire is that Jesus be glorified. Somebody say hallelujah. Jesus be glorified. Jesus be glorified. Hey, it's in Jesus' name we pray. The altars are open. They're going to stay open. And so if you're in the altars receiving ministry, don't feel like you got to get up and rush out. But if you need to get your kids to get out of here, you're free to go. We love you. We pray you have a wonderful week. Um, but we'll stay here as long as you want to stay here. And next steps, we'll start at 1030 in the guest lounge. Ready for more. Ready for more. Break down the walls. Push back the door. We're ready for more. Ready.